metaphor is the gateway to figurative language in the rest of the world. And like, simile is like, can my girlfriend come? Like, it's not, it's, it's, it's basic. <laughs> can you bring that back to Georgia in some way or, or the experience of being a Georgia football fan? Yeah. Like uh, simile is like the, the canned game day music that you play in your house because you can't go to the game. Mm-hmm. And metaphor is like the real thing. It's the experience of being there. Welcome to Chapel Bell Curve, stats-focused podcast about UGA football. I'm Justin. And I'm Nathan. And today we got another off-season episode for you. We're kind of wrapping up our preseason talks, giving you a little bit of news about what's going on in the world, and hopefully we can um, attempt to assuage your uh, concerns about the ever-growing list of injuries we have on this team, it seems. But we will talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Uh, we'll also go over some FPI things, some SMB Plus things, some predictions. We'll go over some Ask CBCs as well. But, you know, it's going to be yeah. great. It's yeah, be really I think good. this is this is probably we've got two we're two weeks out from the season, so I think our real big preview stuff is going to start out next week. Um, and you know, I think it's been a good off season. It's been a productive off season for us in many professional ways, if not on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have some things, I think, lined up for this season that are going to be really exciting about the way things are going to, you know, function a little bit differently from week to week. And, yeah, so let's let's finish it up strong here. So let's start out with some news. Um, yeah. One thing one thing I see you got here on the, the rundown is uh, the NCAA thinking about increasing the signing class limit. Do you want to go into that real quick? Yeah, it was something that came across just a couple of days ago is that they're, they've been talking, you know, there's been a lot of uh, scuttlebutt about uh, players transferring, you know, and, and they just don't, they don't, uh, what is it? Uh, what what did I saw, see the other day, something along the lines of, they just don't appreciate the opportunities given to them. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> I don't think it's that. So in a way to sort of combat this, uh, the way that, you know, the transfer portal has kind of taken over in a lot of ways, uh, NCAA is looking at more immediately increasing the signing class limit for schools. Um, and the way that that would work is, as students leave, as students transfer out, then the school gets extra slots, essentially. So they would be able to sign more than 25 students to scholarships each uh, signing period. Um, the signee cap, though, is really what they're kind of talking about right now, is that is it going to be five? Is it going to be seven? Is it going to be 10? Is it going to be whatever? It sounds like there is going to be a, a signee cap of some sort, and seven is the number I've seen most often. But a lot of people are concerned that this will certainly affect the smaller schools. I mean, when big things like this tend to happen, it hurts the little teams and little leagues first. And this, in conjunction with what we've been seeing with the uh, sort of the super SEC league um, and also talks of like the ACC uh, and the uh, Pac-12 and all these other um, smaller leagues like joining together, it's it's kind of it's kind of a weird time in college football, the way that we're kind of transitioning. And, and I just kind of wanted to see what you thought about that. Um, You know, I think on the one hand, I agree that there is a certain amount of just like you have to deal with the fact that the group of five is just always going to get screwed and that Mm -hmm. even outside of the group of five lower tier teams in power five conferences are going to get screwed more often. So I I think on there, there are several levels of this, right? So on the one hand, everything benefits the Georgias and Alabamas and Ohio States of the world because that's the way privilege works. And I don't mean Mm -hmm. like 
in the white privilege sense, I just mean the concept of privilege. That's how it works. You know, like mm -hmm. most things that affect a system in a normal way, of, like are positive for you if you already have power. Um, on the other, I think that there is an element to this that also helps these smaller schools because, you know, the people that are getting rated a lot of times are the ones who are sort of the the plucky lower tier schools with very good talent, right? So mm -hmm. this would, you know, getting seven extra players on, I don't know, Boise State or Louisiana, although I don't think they've lost much to transfer, that doesn't necessarily fix their problem, but it does mean that they have like a deeper pool of talent to pull to try to replace some of that talent from, right? When you have, mm -hmm. generally the transfers that are most exciting to people are ones that go from lower to higher or from high to high, not from high to low. So in that sense, I think it helps smaller schools because you know they're the people losing them. And in another, I mean, I do think it's positive in the sense that I think the more people playing college football, the better, just in general. Well, the more people getting paid to play college football, even more so, the better. I think that there is a there's an element and there's a there's a degree to which the limits on scholarships are not just to control Alabama from signing 100 players every year. Mm -hmm. They're also to make it so that there's, you know, there's a scarcity of these spots, right, to to prevent schools from having to pay as many players as they would need to to be competitive, right? And so yeah. because that that sort of limitation, that scarcity screws over high school students who are, you know, have the least amount of power in any situation, I think it's any always positive when more of them can get signed on its mm -hmm. face. I do wonder, though, like, I, I, I do feel like this, in, in my opinion, this is, is maybe fairly similar, but a touch different than, than yours in the sense that I do think that this will only really benefit the greater teams, the bigger teams, the ones with more talent already, like the higher signing classes, because think about how the the last several players that we've lost over the last few years, the reason why they transferred out was typically there was someone else ahead of them that was better at, at that position at that time. And so if, say, we lose Justin Fields, just the, the first name that pops up in, in my mind, you get another slot to sign someone else that might not be coming to Georgia because there wasn't going to be a scholarship and they were offered a scholarship elsewhere kind of thing. Well, so I, I do want to, I do just... want to just pause you before we get yelled at in Twitter and on the discord. I assume uh -huh. to say that, uh, when Jake Fromm left the, or when Justin, Justin Fields, Fields left, he was not, he did not have someone better than him and ahead of him. No. And I agree. And then that's, that's all very different. Yeah. Uh, but that's just the first name that popped in my head is that the fact that, you know, he left because he wasn't getting starting time. Someone else was ahead of him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. And so you slot another person in. We get a 26 person in the next signing period, whereas we would have just got 25. And we weren't going to add another. We might just add another quarterback and just have the same issue over and over again. It might be one of those things where our cup continues to overflow with the talent and people continue to transfer out. And I'm just thinking about some of these bigger teams that are still – they're going to – there's going to be some way that somebody – takes advantage of this <laughs> in some way like they're going to sign a bunch of one position i don't know one position or something but I, i'm curious well, I to mean, see I, how it ends up I, yeah i think you're right in the sense that sometimes people are asked to transfer in schools right mm -hmm. so you know if you have a guy who has not panned out to his expected talent level and you sort of process him out of the program um which is sort of the euphemism that often gets used then you know if that kid transfers and plays, you know, lands somewhere else, you know that you're going to get his spot back. So yeah, I think it does mm -hmm. affect. It helps high tier schools and it helps schools that are pretty cutthroat in roster management. But I also think, like, ultimately, it helps everyone. 
And in a system mm-hmm. when something helps everyone, it doesn't really always change the difference between the haves and the haves not have nots, mm-hmm. right? So like if, if the rising tide lifts all boats, the gap between the size of Georgia's boat and Georgia State's boat is gonna remain the same. Even if Georgia yeah. State's boat gets slightly bigger. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And that, that I think is I, one... I, I... No, go ahead. I was going to say that that is one ism that I usually use when we're talking, trying to talk about, you know, equity and, and whatnot. But this doesn't feel as much like an equitable move as much as it feels like the loudest people in the room are the ones most privileged still. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and that's yeah, why that's we're getting saying. this move. I, 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 yeah. I don't think it I don't think it changes much. I, I do think it is the logical thing to do. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I think in particular for programs like if you look at Buffalo, who lost their head coach, mm-hmm. Lance Leipold. I think it was Lance Leifold who left Buffalo. Anyway, Buffalo lost their their head coach like way, way, way late in the season. They lost him in like mm-hmm. March or something, right? And so as soon as their head coach leaves, like they immediately lose like 10 or 15 players to transfer. So yeah. that is the situation I think they're trying to avoid, which is these, you know, if you had, you know, like when Billy Napier leaves Louisiana, right? Mm-hmm. And he takes, like, I don't know, the Alabama job or something. Like, he's going to take every good player that he wants from Louisiana, right? Mm-hmm. And the ones that he doesn't take, the really good ones are going to leave. So yeah. I think that this is a rule that helps people, helps programs in that situation specifically, yeah. right? It definitely does, yeah. And that is a really good point, is that it will help help those situations when you do have a, a, a team from a, a less uh, prolific conference that loses a head coach and the whole coaching staff and goes elsewhere and... Um, and with it, a lot of new signees. So that does make sense. Yeah. So w- yeah. we'll see how it pans out. Well, Just we're kind curious. of burying the lead here. Uh, we're, we're, how so? If we're, if we're doing, if we're going to do a new segment and we're not going to start on injuries, we're really burying the lead, lead honestly. Um, well, that's just the next thing coming up. Yeah. So let's talk about it. So obviously, mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone listening to this who's a Georgia fan already knows Tyke Smith, Darnell Washington, both injured their metatarsal bone, their, I think, outer metatarsal bone at practice last week uh my understanding is that both of them had if not surgery some sort of procedure to fix it Mm -hmm. in terms of the medical side of it it seems like people are saying three to six weeks uh you know that could be back for south carolina i think would probably be the targeted date if not south carolina the next game i think is like vanderbilt or something so then you can give them four weeks and come back after vanderbilt south carolina is also going to be pretty bad so I we'll talk about the Clemson game in a second, but for the season as a whole, I think that these two injuries, given that they come back on a timeline that is, you know, consistent with what other players who have had these injuries have had, I think these two injuries will be minimally impactful to the season because if Georgia can't Mm -hmm. beat South Carolina and UAB and Vanderbilt without Tyke Smith and Darnell Washington, then it doesn't matter anyway. Right. Yeah. There's much bigger problems. Yeah. Really? The concern is the Clemson game. And I, we can get into this more in a second, but I think that that, that game is kind of gravy, gravy in some ways. So all the other, only other medical note I'll say is that I did read about how I think Cole Kublik, the ESPN guy who was a, an offensive lineman at Auburn, had said that he had that injury. And basically, it's the kind of thing where you can either choose to have an, interven- an intervention, like have a surgery on it or not have it. And if you don't have it, you can play quicker, but you might re-injure it. So I'm assuming that mm. the, the sort of thought process is on Kirby's part, right? Like you really need them less for Clemson and more for the SEC championship game and Florida and Auburn, right? Yeah. And nothing about anything that we've heard 
about these two injuries says that we won't have those guys, right? I, every yeah. prognosis we have is that for the games that really matter in the SEC, we're going to have these guys anyway. So I think mm-hmm. big picture, I'm not that freaked out about it. Uh, I do sort of feel like we're cursed, and that's... <laughs> You know, just that's, how it that's is. something that I felt for a long time, and this is nothing to change that thought. But I think that in terms of does this ruin the season, I don't really think so because I think losing the Clemson game doesn't ruin the season. In terms no, of how it affects, how does it affect our chances against Clemson? I mean, I mean, what do you think about that? Like, what? How has your perception of the Clemson game changed since the injury, the news of the injuries has come out? I mean, as, as we've had more injuries kind of come through and more news of those injuries happening, it is definitely like Cle- the Clemson game to me was always going to be up until now more of a 50 50 shot. It felt like we don't know what Clemson's going to look like. They're returning nine def- de- uh, defensive starters. It's like that's a hard game regardless of what's happening. And now that we're not at full strength on offense and now um, a little bit to an extent defense, it. it I mean, it doesn't change my mind of the season in any way, because if we lose to Clemson, there's still a, a fairly solid chance we win the rest of our games. We play Clemson again, most likely. Um, it's just not, I mean, it is what it is. It would be really disappointing. I would love to start the season with a Clemson win against Clemson, because I just really don't like Davis Winnie. But um, huh. You hate him enough that you're going to mispronounce his name forever. And oh, I yeah, he's Debo. Debo. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a silly name. Uh <laughs> Um, but yeah i'm really trying to contain myself but every time someone talks about clemson i have to say something about how dabo swinney is just like a the worst kind of baptist youth pastor ass man 100 percent. i've met 100 of him in my life yeah. and i've not He's liked just, a single one of them i i feel like you know this is not the measure of someone's value on this planet but he does give me big vibes of like why why would i be interested in interacting with you and like pretty much on on any level like what what possible value could you bring to a Mm one-on-one interaction between us i mean he has a lot of money so i guess if he just wanted to back the money truck up or whatever we could hang out yeah that's fine we'll always open the doors yeah yeah. but speaking of which advertisers hit us up (laughs) (laughs) the beauty of of recording today on a saturday two weeks away from actual football is that there was a scrimmage today so do you want to go through a little bit of what we have notes on from what was seen that day so it can kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what we might expect when we do actually yeah. go against Clemson in a couple of sure. weeks. Sure, and and I think this kind of gives us some more uh, context Hope. on everything that's happening, <laughs> uh, especially context with those. In, um, it gives us more context on those injuries, which is to say uh, the news of who is playing and who is starting at this point, you know, two weeks out, we're about to start actual Clemson prep. This is the last, you know, fall camp scrimmage. So I think who is starting and where people are slotted at this point is really important and really tells you a lot about what the what the coaches are thinking about these injuries. Um, you know, relevant specifically to the Tyke Smith and Darnell Washington injuries, it seems like Brent Seether and Brock Bowers are going to be playing tight end a lot. John Fitzpatrick is injured in some way. He has some kind of nagging injury. We're not sure yet whether or not he's going to be back. Brock Bowers is a... Really, really impressive tight end, I would say, prospect still at this point. But he is a guy that doesn't quite have the Arik Gilbert, Darnell Washington pedigree, but has quite a tight end pedigree. So in that sense, pretty excited to have that depth. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you that like Brock Bowers is going to replace Arik Gilbert's production or anything or Darnell Washington's production. But I will say that if he's your you know fourth string guy or whatever that you have to go to in a big game, you could do worse. Uh, Latravius Brinney 
is currently starting at star. He has some experience. He played there last year. He played there at the Cincinnati game, and after he had a couple of hiccups at the beginning of the game, he looked really good. Uh, Brinny is a guy who certainly he doesn't have the accolades or the production that Tyke Smith has had, but is a more than serviceable replacement. So I think you know mm-hmm. just those two pieces of news have got to make you feel good. Additionally, uh, and this is being all been reported by 24-7 and by rivals, and I think I've seen some of this online just with the various beat reporters, but it seems like Keely Ringo and Darian Kendrick are going to be starters at the outside cornerback positions. I think, to me, that's good news on a couple of counts. One, you expect Darian Kendrick to slot in there, so him not him not being buried in the depth chart is a good sign. It means you know that spot didn't mm-hmm. go to waste. Two, Amir Speed is a very good player. He's a very experienced player, but... He doesn't have the sort of athletic profile or prospect background that Keely Ringo does. Keely Ringo is a guy that, you know, I mean, he's he's a Patrick Sertain Jr. type. He's a guy who, mm-hmm. coming out of high school, people thought was going to be a first-round draft pick. So seeing him get in the mix and maybe even starting at cornerback, coming off of an injury his freshman year, to me, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, star is a very important position at, you know, the way UGA runs defense uh, these days, but... I think that you can take some of the pressure off of the star cornerback if you can afford to more comfortably put your outside guys on islands, right? And so the more talent we have on the outside, the less pressure it puts on whoever's at star, who is probably the person who's going to have to match up against Justin Ross a lot of the time. And we're Mm -hmm. not totally sure on Justin Ross' health. He's cleared to play, but there's a difference between cleared to play and, you know, back up to to national championship shape or whatever. So, but given that we just have to assume that he is, I think... I, there's nothing that I saw from you know the actual who is starting where notes on the scrimmage that really made me feel bad. I don't want anyone to feel like we're glossing over the loss of Tyke Smith or Darnell Washington. It really matters, and it very well could make it harder for us to win the Clemson game. I tend mm-hmm. to kind of think that if we were going to lose the Clemson game, we would have lost it without them. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the way football works is that the loss of an individual player is really about margin for error, right? And I think that I certainly would feel much better about our margin for error to beat Clemson if we had these two guys, right? Yeah. I I feel like right now you got to have kind of a perfect game in terms of just you come out playing well, you avoid injuries, you execute your game plan, and you can win the game. I think with Tyke Smith, you could afford to kind of faff about a little bit on defense. With Darnell Washington, you could afford to have some hiccups initially, Right. But without them, you kind of got to come out and be moving the ball and stopping and getting stops just from the opening snap. Um, mm-hmm. I so really that's not love... to say that I don't think it matters. It's just that I don't know that it. I think the fact that we're Georgia makes it feel shittier than it would if we weren't. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you this, then. If we had the other players that we already have out of the season, we, you know, Dominic Blaylock is, of course, he's you know, he's getting better. He's getting healthier. Um, if we had George Pickens. Uh, how would we feel then if Tyke Smith and uh, Darnell Washington were out now? Like, because I mean, really, I, I Darnell think... Washington, him being out, is really it, it kind of aggravates the loss of our other wide receivers. Of Jor- our receiver yeah, core. yeah. I, I think Tyke Smith is going to hurt regardless, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Tyke Smith is. I've been really high on him since he transferred. I know, like, I went on Dog Sports Live and talked about him. He's a really special player. I think he's going to be really good in his time at Georgia. So certainly missing him, I think, is the bigger blow than Darnell Washington. And it's not that's no, no, no disrespect to Darnell Washington at all. It's just, A, 
the relative importance of their two positions at UGA currently, you know, schematically, is that star is always going to matter more than tight end. And yeah. B, even with Darnell Washington out, even with George Pickens out, you still have, you know, Burton, you still have a, an untested but very, very highly ranked four or five star in Brock Bowers. You still have... Mm-hmm. You know, you still have Donnie Mitchell, A.D. Mitchell coming on. You have Karis Jackson. Dominic Blake might be healthy. You have, you know, um, Mark's, uh, what's his name? Marcus Ro- Rosemey Jackson seems to be on his way back and ready to play. So it's not as though there are no weapons at UGA without Darnell Washington. There are fewer proven mm-hmm. weapons, certainly. But it's not as though we're suddenly going to be starting a walk-on or anything. I mean, we're still going to be starting four and five stars at both of these positions where we're missing guys. And I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to seem unconcerned about it. It's just like, that's why you build a team the way that UGA has built this team, right? You build you build a team with five stars at the third string so that when you have injuries, you can just plug a five star in, which is what mm-hmm. UGA is doing at basically every position. Um, we also had some notes, I think, about the offensive line. Uh, it's being reported that the first team offensive line at the mm-hmm. first scrimmage was from left to right. Uh, Jamari Sawyer, Justin Schaefer, Cedric Van Pran, Tate Rattledge, and Warren McClendon. Um, any reaction to that? Uh, we talked about it before the show, that just that I'm I'm happy that that's where Jamari Sawyer ended up going, um, only because I've had a, a big football crush on Jamari Sawyer the last, uh, since we've got to know him. And it just kind of proves to me, sitting in that left tackle position, it, it really proves to me that he is uh, he's growing a lot. He's being utilized properly. I know that that was a big, uh, in the tackle positions, we were, we were very concerned, um, especially given that JT Daniels is much more of a, he wants to drop back and pass um, instead of um, making plays happen with his, his legs, you know? So it makes sense to me. And that that's the part that I am most excited about. But uh, what, what are you reading into this? Um... I mean, Warren McClendon, I think, was probably one of the guys you thought would take the right tackle spot. Justin mm-hmm. Schaefer is very experienced. That's no surprise. Cedric Van Pran. I think it's interesting that Cedric Van Pran was starting over Warren Erickson, who was apparently playing second-team center. Um, my understanding is that Erickson has a some kind of break in his hand, but that he mm. can snap with both hands. So he's currently snapping with his offhand. So I guess mm. reading the tea leaves there, you either think that they either they think that Erickson, you know, will not have the punch he needs with his with a cast on his offhand, or Cedric Van Pran is doing well enough that, you know, you you feel like you can plug him in there. And I mean, both of them were very highly rated center prospects. I mean, Van Pran yeah. in, in particularly in particular was a guy who made people drool. And and you know, the thing is with the offensive line, I really think the offensive line on both sides of the ball uh, against Clemson is going to be what decides the game. It's just going to be who can block. I think the one advantage that Georgia has going into this game, even with the injuries, is that the the pedigree and background of our offensive line and just, frankly, the sort of get-off-the-bus stats of height, weight, et cetera, really favor us. I think that this offensive line is going to have trouble with Clemson's defensive line because every mm-hmm. offensive line in the nation is. But I think that maybe the gap between our offensive line and their defensive line is smaller than the gap between our defensive line and their offensive line. The guy they have Ooh. penciled in at starter right now at center is like 285 pounds. Oof. And I mean, that's, that's, that's the dude who has to stop Justin, uh, who has to stop Jordan Davis. Right. So, yeah. And, and 
Nolan Smith sometimes and then has to stop Jalen Carter. So I think I, I, I think that if you really want an early indicator of how UJ looks, it's just to watch the ball at the snap on both sides of the ball and see what happens. And if Georgia so, isn't Go ahead. Like if Georgia is most of the time not even winning reps against Clemson's defensive line, if Georgia is just sort of like getting a little bit of push occasionally and not giving up, you know, three or four sacks in the first quarter, they have a chance to win because I, I mm-hmm. Clemson has a very talented offensive line, but they are not as high profile or recruit and they're a little bit smaller. They're very well coached and they work very well for Clemson's system. But, you know, Georgia's defensive interior is the strength of the whole team. Yeah. And even if it isn't as good as Clemson's, you don't, you know, Jordan Davis doesn't have to beat Miles Mitchell or whoever is on Clemson's defensive line. He has to just beat the dude who's across from him. And I think that the gap is probably going to be smaller when Clemson or when Georgia has the ball than when Clemson does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The way too early prediction for the Clemson game, uh, just not, not who wins, who loses, but um, I want to ask you, which is kind of with what we're, we're talking through right now, you know, our defense brought back plenty of returning value. So did their defense. And it seems like the most question marks are between both teams, offensive uh, schemes and, and also their lines and, and who their weapons are. A lot of unproven weapons, as we said in this episode. So is this going to be one of those games where whoever makes the break point you think wins? Or is it going to be a game where uh, it does just stay low because the, both these defenses are so well proven? Um, I mean, look, I, I don't want to give him any credit, but Clemson's offense over the past few years has been pretty much guaranteed to score 28, 35 points, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that's going to be much different just because I think DJ Ulongale is a very, very good player. I think that Justin Ross is a good player. I think it's going to just come down to maybe three or four possessions and who gets stops, right? And mm-hmm. to me, matchup wise, you really like Georgia's defense. I think. You know, Clemson on offense, they have Justin Ross. They have a very good uh, first-year starter at running back. They have DJ at cornerback or at quarterback. But they don't necessarily have – I mean, like, who who do you who scares you out of Clemson's wide receiver room outside of Justin Ross? There are certainly some guys with, like, high-profile pedigrees on, in, on that team as weapons. But mm-hmm. I, I think that – for all that we talk about, like Georgia has injuries, Georgia has injuries. Where are the weapons? Where's the proven weapons? You know, I mean, my question is what happens if Justin Ross isn't a hundred percent? Like we know he's going to play. What happens if he doesn't have an impact on the game? Like who are they turning to? I, I, I'm not though. That's if this were a Clemson podcast, I feel like we would be saying the exact same thing about UGA's offense. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. We're going to win this game. Pickens is out. Like the only name we all know, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, and and I, I didn't, I'm not saying that to discount Clemson's chances at all. I think that the general narrative as it's being spun nationally right now is, is the problem, not necessarily whether or not UGA, you know, I mean, if you want to predict, predict Clemson to win this game, like that's, I think it's a totally rational thing to do. I think, Mm -hmm. The, the idea that UGA is the team with all the questions coming to this game is, to me, isn't borne out by just who is on the roster, right? UGA yeah, has yeah, questions yeah. coming into this game, certainly has things to prove. But I think that Clemson, just thinking that it's like fait accompli, that Clemson's offense is just going to come back and replace Travis Etienne and it won't be a big deal and replace Trevor Lawrence and it won't be a big deal. Like, I, I don't know that that, I don't think it's you know, that's like really that. the case. And look, and no. okay. 
Britt Venables is a very good defensive uh, coach, and they have a very good front seven. But you know, Clemson over throughout the years, and I have and I haven't gotten into game week prep for Clemson yet, and I haven't looked at their their too deep. But Clemson throughout the years has had some guys starting on defense that have gotten exposed against high level skill talent. And what mm-hmm. I would point out is that even with injuries, UGA still has high level skill talent. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, All we'll right. talk more about Clemson in the Clemson preview episode for well, sure. Well, do you want to talk about this season prediction thing we got worked out? Yeah, let's talk about it a little bit. So let us know how. What do you think? How do you? How is this going to go? We got a question from Floppy four five four or Ian on our uh, Discord. Uh, that we thought was such a good question that we would just turn it into a segment. So he said, this might be a little bit too involved for an Ask CBC question. It was, but hey, it was good enough that we just ran with it. But I'm <laughs> curious what you'd give as the win probability for each game and how it compares to, uh, to FPI or S&P+. So he sent over a Saturday Down South link to mm-hmm. the uh, FPI results for each, uh, each game on Georgia's schedule this year. Um, and FPI is a, another power ranking that it's ESPN's proprietary power ranking um, statistic or whatever. And it is not very bullish on Georgia, I think, throughout. And so what I thought mm-hmm. what I thought would be the best way to do this is just to go game by game, read all the percentage chances of winning, and then sort of react to how does that compare to what we know SP plus wise? How does that compare to just like our intuition and sort of feel out our feelings on the season, you know, just based on that, those differences. All right. Yeah. All right. So start starting out with Clemson, uh, UGA FBI gives uh, Georgia a 28.7% chance of winning against Clemson, (laughs) a 93.9% chance of winning against UAB. And here's the most embarrassing number on the schedule. Honestly, a 93.1% chance of winning against South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Which means that they route they rate South Carolina as only being 0.8 percent better than UAB, which is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, this one's less embarrassing because I guess it's in fact expected. But then 95.7 percent chance of winning against Vanderbilt, 87.5 percent chance of winning against Arkansas, and then 63.2 percent chance of winning against Auburn. Now, mm-hmm. if you'll pause one, I do want to pause one second. If we just look at the flow of those first six yeah. games there. One of the things that makes me feel better about the Tyke Smith or Darnell Washington game or Darnell Washington injuries right off the bat is that once you get past Clemson, if those guys need to sit until Auburn, it's fine. Yeah, they can. Right. So moving on. Honestly, if they have to sit till Florida, like if if we don't have these guys for Clemson, which we we aren't, obviously, um, you know, it is what it is. If we don't have them for Auburn, like... I think it's one of those things where you've been saying a lot of like, if we needed these two players specifically to win this game, then it's indicative of a bigger problem. I think that it's, it's I, I just believe that Auburn is not the same. It's not the same caliber as Clemson, obviously. And I think that we have enough going on to still beat Auburn without those two pieces specifically. Because yeah. uh, a lot of the the two teams, and we'll, we'll get to the next team in a second, that everyone is saying that we are going to have the hardest time against Clemson in Florida. But yeah. So 63.2% chance of beating Auburn, 87.8% chance of beating Kentucky, 62.4% chance of beating Florida, 89.9% against Mizzou, 818 against Tennessee, 998 against Charleston Southern, and then 851 against Georgia Tech. So right off the bat, 
any gut reactions to those numbers that you think, you know, this might be too high, this might be too low, et cetera? I will say I'm surprised that the Auburn and Florida games were both so similar. Um, yeah. That doesn't strike me as being correct. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I feel like there should be more much, of a disparity between those two. I wonder how much home field advantage is is tying in there with Auburn. We're playing at Auburn this year. Yeah. Yeah. The, the number that jumps out to me is that Auburn number seems real, real low to me. I, I It does. I think Auburn's going to be pretty good. I think Brian Harsison is an okay coach. I just... I mean, what have we seen about Bo Nix? What have we seen? I know that uh, this is... I know we're going to get another review telling me how, what, you know, asking why I would alienate 50% of the country or whatever. But if Bo Nix were black, he would play tight end. I'm going to say it again. If Bo Nix were black, he'd be playing tight end. What, what, I, I, I mean, yeah, 62, uh, 63.2%. I think it would be, I, I mean, if you had, if you had to give, make me give like a percentage, just like pulled out of my butt right now, I would probably say Auburn mm-hmm. was more like 70 like, I think yeah. Florida is probably a game that Georgia should win, but I think 62, 62% is probably okay there. Um, if we look at SP+, Plus, you know, Florida or uh, Florida versus Georgia SP+, Plus is about like a five-point game, but Florida versus Auburn mm-hmm. is a 10-point game. So SP+, yeah. Plus definitely, I think, is on our side there. The one... The one that also kind of gets me, and and I look, I think Clemson should be flavored, favored in the UGA game, especially in light of the injuries. But twenty eight for seven flavored, ha. <laughs> Clemson flavored uh, anything is just like the taste of chopped up Bible and like you know smarmy <laughs> holier than thouness. Anyway, um, I think twenty eight per twenty eight point seven percent chance of winning. Like, okay, should Clemson be favored? Yes, but like seventy two percent chance or seventy one or whatever. I mm. I don't know. That just that feels like a lot to me i i think you know sp plus has this as a three to four point game and if you're saying that the most likely outcome is that clemson wins by three to four points to me that doesn't feel like a you know 70 percent chance of a win right mm. and and i know that's not that's apples to oranges in terms of how both of these statistics function but that one to me feels really low i mean i would say uga probably has like a i don't know 35 percent chance of winning 40 percent chance of winning something like that um i i will probably reevaluate that as we go forward and i get a little closer look at clemson i feel like i know a lot about uga and not as much about clemson right now so anything else yeah. to stand out to you there i mean i guess the biggest thing is like you look outside of clemson Auburn, uh and florida and it's like you know, if your worst case scenario happens and the sky falls out and the apocalypse happens, this team should have nine wins, right? And yeah. honestly, if everything goes wrong, this team should probably have ten wins. <laughs> like, yeah. And that, I mean, people, there's a lot of stuff going around about how, oh, well, at this point in their careers, you know, Kirby Smart and and Mark Richt have like basically the same record. And you know, why did we get rid of? How has Kirby Smart improved anything? And I would point that. I would point out that what was the last time under Mark Richt that you looked at a schedule and you were like, worst case scenario, we should win nine games. And you felt confident about it. Mm-hmm. You know, every time that usually like, thought that yeah. in the early 2000s, we would go like six and six. The thing that I was trying I'm to saying. find, actually, while we were talking about all this is just how how Clemson's rankings changed year to year. Because I know that it does take into account a lot of returning value, but I do just feel that it should be fairly different after losing both their like once in several, like 
it's not a once in a generation. It's it, it, talent in Etienne and Lawrence, but they're two guys who are going to probably have pretty fantastic NFL careers. And they made a huge difference being on this Clemson team. And they were a huge part of the offensive schematics. And so it just makes me wonder how much did it actually drop? It couldn't like it's five right now. They're ranked fifth offensively in SP plus and fourth defensively in SP plus the defensive one makes sense. The offensive one, I feel like it should be a bit lower um, just with so much, so many unproven pieces, but it is, I mean, I think, you know, know. you have a lot of, you have a lot of returning production outside of your big name losses in, you know, Mm ETN and uh, Lawrence. I think, you know, I think for the sort of non statistically inclined crowd, that a lot of the Clemson hype comes from the fact that, you know, DJ Uangale, God, Ui Uangale, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying so hard, that D, their quarterback had played in two games last year, right? He beat Notre Dame and he beat Boston College. Mm-hmm. And I think had he not played in those games, we would be having a much different conversation, right? And I, yeah. I, 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 you know, Clemson has had a, a, a run of really good quarterbacks, so I think on some level it makes sense to give them the benefit of the doubt. They are they are sort of just a program that is built to reload in some ways. They recruit, a, they have a different recruiting profile than UGA or Alabama, but they definitely get their guys and they have a lot of really high talent guys. And so, I mean, I, I get it. I just, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I think that in, in many ways, UGA is the highest ranked program that doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. my, my frustration with that is not that we don't get the benefit of the doubt because we shouldn't. It's that everyone else does, right? Mm-hmm. We shouldn't get the benefit of the doubt because we will find out, we'll, we will figure out a way to step on our dick because we're Georgia and that's fine. <laughs> but, you know, I think that there's been such a, cal- a calcification at the top of college football that there's this assumption that these teams are always going to be the same. Now, every year, some combination of Oklahoma, Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson are going to be very good. But mm-hmm. the assumption that these teams are just going to roll over again and again, I think, is a warped one, and it's warped by uh, one Nick Saban, right? You know, and historically, teams having these like ten to fifteen year runs is really rare, even under a really good coach. And so, I'm not like predicting the death of the Clemson dynasty or anything. I think they're going to be really good this year. I just think that the idea that it's just going to be like, all right, on to the next one or whatever, is sort mm-hmm. of to me that doesn't feel real. I think. If Clemson played in the SEC, we would, I mean, like right now we're all just assuming they're going to go to the playoff, right? And that even if, even if um, UGA beats them, that they still have a pretty good chance of going. And so I think, I don't know. I I just think that we're not, we haven't quite been rigorous enough in our investigation of Clemson to this point, which is only annoying because everyone has been very rigorous in their investigation of UGA. Yeah. Ooh. I will just finally add, you know, we're talking about the, the, the disparity in these rankings right now, but the, the the difference between the fifth-ranked offensively Clemson and the 16th-ranked offensively Georgia is only three points, um, which in the grand... Like, that must mean that the top 16 spots are just so closely... Like, anything can happen when the 15... The top 15 teams are playing essentially uh with as far as just offense goes um defensively we're only a tenth of a point lower yeah and so yeah when when we look at that all that to say is that like when we look at this 28.7 percent chance of winning for georgia i just find that hard to believe when this is a 
uh, a three-point game in theory per SP plus. Like it, it seems like it should be closer to seventy or sixty, um, or excuse me, uh, sixty or fifty. You know, um, like how many absolutely. and how many of those games does something just go catastrophically wrong? Because to me, that's what has to happen for for us to be given a twenty-eight point seven percent chance of winning. Yep. Yep. Well, I think but. it's time to make some money. Yeah, let's make some money. Let's back that truck up. What do you got this yeah. week? Who's well, our sponsor? Today, our sponsor, one of our our only beautiful sponsor today is Homefield Apparel. They are a top tier haberdasher supplier of vintage Ooh. college football apparel. They have logos and designs that no one else has. They go through the back catalog of your team and will select thoughtful, interesting, historical designs to put into super comfortable shorts last weekend last saturday they launched their georgia collection it has 14 pieces of apparel including t-shirts hoodies and crewnecks um these are pretty much vintage marks that you can't find other way other way other places um i don't know i mean we got ours how do, how do you, how are you feeling about your georgia swag from home field today I'm pretty sure that the only shirts I've worn the last full week have been the two shirts I got from Homefield, and I absolutely yeah. love them. Like they are, they fit well. Um, they're soft. They look good. Um, I didn't have. I've I've never enjoyed UGA t-shirts. I'll be honest. Like Georgia t-shirts have just never been something that have stuck with me. They don't fit in my closet in any certain way. Like I've always stuck with polos or button downs from Georgia, and these shirts have instantly found a home in my current rotation. So. Yeah, if that's Georgia, anything. There's a lot of Georgia apparel out there that is very much like big dog truck nut style uh, oh, yeah. apparel. And these, this is definitely not what that is. And uh, they launch a new, Homefield Apparel launches a new school every week. And in the previous weeks, they've launched Notre Dame, LSU, Texas, Texas A&M, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, and Miami. This week, they're launching Washington. And actually, uh, I don't know if you looked at the Washington designs, but they are very, oh, very yes. good. Uh, you know, uh, we both like them. They are they make shirts that fit me, which is pretty shocking. I have their light gray <laughs> leaning bulldog shirt, and I love him. I love that leaning bulldog so much. He has a hooded eye. I have a hooded eye. I feel this deep sense of kinship to him, and I wish he was my friend. So you can get 15% off your first purchase from Homefield Apparel if you use the promo code Chapel Bell Curve. All caps, Chapel Bell Curve. All one, one word. word. When you check out at homefieldapparel.com, we'd love if you did. And yeah, go buy some shirts. Go check it out. And I will I will just add at the very end there, there are a lot of t-shirts from other teams that I would buy. I know you own some. Colorado School of Mines. Blaster the, mm. bl- Blaster the Donkey. He's amazing. Or Blaster <laughs> so yeah, the Burrow. Go on over. Hit up homefieldapparel.com. Use that promo code, Chapel Bell Curve, all one word, and get that 50% off if it's your first purchase. And go grab some more swag because it's all very good. Mm-hmm. All right. So, our favorite it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Every episode right here. What is it, Nathan? <laughs> it's Ask CBC, baby. Hot damn, oh, baby. Oh man, we we got some bangers. We got some bangers. It's pro- it's kind of spicy. a shorter list than normal, but I think we have some really spicy ones. Uh coming mm-hmm. out the gate strong. J- Jashley on the Discord has asked, "What's something about your wedding day you're really glad you did and something you regret not doing?" Oof, big one. That's a big question. Yeah. Um What's something about my wedding day mm, that I'm really glad I did? I really loved 
doing, I'll do, I'll, I'll just name a few things off the top of my head. I really loved doing a first look so we could get that out of the way uh, because I boohooed both times when I first saw my now wife and when we were like the, during the entire ceremony. So there was no loss of emotion or feeling there, which some people tend to fear that it's not going to be as meaningful or powerful when you see them for the first time coming down the aisle. But it certainly was super powerful and meaningful both times. And we got to get a lot of really great pictures out of the way beforehand. And we also had a one-on-one a -on -one time between the ceremony and having to go see all of our guests. Uh, and that was really great too, that we just got to spend some time alone for a little while because the next time I saw her alone was when we left our wedding. <laughs> and that, yeah, it's just a big day. Um, what about you? Um... You know, I mean, I guess the things that I'm happy about, I think that our wedding was sort of, I think among people who went to it, our wedding was sort of known as a sort of a banger, kind of a rager. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy that we managed to get across to folks who came in that we wanted to have fun, that we didn't want it yeah. to feel stuffy. I'm really happy that we did pictures beforehand because that would have sucked. I'm really <laughs> happy that we had an efficient, my dad, who did it in did the whole service in about 15 minutes and got us out of there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really, my favorite part of my wedding was when we drove home or when we drove to the hotel we were staying in, this is not a sex story. I know it's going to shock everyone, but <laughs> we, we drove to the hotel that we were staying in and the, our wonderful caterers at mama's boy had packed us just these giant, like to go boxes, just so full of mm. food. And we got back to hotel Ondigo where we were staying and we, we were so desperately thirsty, both of us, and there was nothing in the room, and we hadn't thought to bring anything to drink with us. And so we went down to their little like hospitality bar area, and uh, the bartender there saw us and was like, are you guys okay? Because we were both just like sweaty and tired looking, and we were like, oh, we just got married. We just wanted Powerade. <laughs> and they just like handed us like a big armful of Powerade, and we <laughs> sat on our bed and ate fr uh, cold fried chicken and Powerade and watched, I think... I want to say one of the Die Hard movies. It's one of my favorite memories ever. Um, I would say just in general that the best thing you can do during your wedding is to not take it as seriously as you think you need to. The, yes. the one thing I regret on my wedding day is that I got stressed out enough that I was mean to people that I wish I had not been mean to. I'm very mm -hmm. sorry to our day of planner. I just want to say that like again. She almost certainly doesn't listen to this, but if she does, I'm very sorry. <laughs> um that, that's my biggest regret. I, th I think the thing that I'm happiest about was that I think we approached it with the right level of seriousness, which is to say it's a big day and it's an important day, but what's the point of it if you can't have fun, right? Yeah, exactly. I feel the same way. Is there anything you regret not doing? I, you know, we had, so we didn't really have a first look. I was very against it at the time, mainly because like I have a very wooden face and I didn't want people taking <laughs> pictures of me at a very big moment, if that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. I... I just, I don't emote very well. And so I was very stressed out about that. So I kind of wish that we had had first look pictures taken. Um, I'm really hope that my wife didn't just hear me say that because uh, <laughs> I'm going to hear me get assaulted mid, mid podcast. I, I, yep, that's yep. probably the only thing. Is there anything that you wish you'd done differently? I wish I would have eaten more of the tacos. Um, we had some uh, really great tacos. We did. And yeah, we, we planned we a did. party that we wish we would have been guests at is kind of what we did. Yeah. And so I regret not being a guest at my own wedding also. Yeah. One of the best things that we did, or, well, we didn't do this, but one of the best things that they did is that uh, Harper, who is the wonderful woman who owns Mama's Boy, was running the catering. And no, just before Cupper. we could even, what's her name? Cupper. 
Cooper? Cooper, Cooper, you can say either Cooper. one. Cooper, it's Cooper. Spelled Cooper, it's Cooper but yeah. she, you can say Sorry. Cooper. Sorry, Cooper, the wonderful woman who runs or owns Mama's Boy, was running our catering. And mm-hmm. before we could get out the door of our ceremony, she had already made like two just gigantic, like 3,000 calorie plates of food. <laughs> and that was probably the smartest thing we did was that we went around to all the guests, but a lot of the... A lot of our time when at, during our, you know, the eating period of our uh, of our wedding was just us sitting there eating while people came by and sort of visited us like we were the godfather. And that's not something that we planned. It's just that Cooper was so good at her job. Yeah, she's very good at her job. Good people over there. Uh, yeah. Next question comes from Jim Wood over under 0.5 collabs between <laughs> my God, a podcast and Chapel Bell Curve this season. I mean, look, man, you get to set I mean, that on we your... We can do one. Sure, why not? Slide, slide into our we'll DMs, man. Yeah, that's fine. I'll... I'll I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very much Let's a, know. like... I'm a, I'm a mid-90s... I'm like, I'm a Boise State, BYU, you know, mid-90s Miami kind of like anytime, anywhere guy when it comes to Georgia <laughs> podcasts. So just yeah. slide up into those Chapel Bell Curve DMs. I, I do still have the recorded episode of uh, Jim Wood talking about his day with Larry uh, uh, Munson, and uh, yeah, I'll have to share that I, at some point. It's I it's, really it feel like lost episodes. I feel like you not releasing that that episode is part of why that podcast exists because <laughs> that they, could very well be true. Because we just we spent so long not not rehearsed. Uh, <laughs> uh, next question comes from Will at Sharkfin Hat. We'll be having my daughter's third birthday party prior to the Clemson game. Ideas on how to maintain my sanity throughout the day and be a good father rather than constantly screaming and panicking. <laughs> so I'm assuming that the good father clause takes out drinking. So let's I start mean, there. Some good dads drink. Yeah, and it depends on what kind of birthday party you're having, right? I would say yeah. to me, my, like I am a very nervous football watcher as justin can attest firsthand Mm -hmm. my my traditional game day involves about 15 to twenty thousand steps so my my advice would be uh to just really lean into the fact that your daughter is having a birthday party and just be super active because that's how i am (laughs) i mean just spend that energy baby yeah, yeah go for a run like carry your daughter around on your shoulders carry your daughter and two of her friends around on your shoulders like really like get the load bearing up you know Mm -hmm. do Maybe go outside if you're really feeling nervous and do some squats. Like when I get nervous and anxious, <laughs> I get high energy. So like I will go run around the neighborhood before a game. Like I will mm-hmm. do like a hundred squats or whatever, you know, at halftime. So um, <laughs> my, oh, my other piece of advice would be eat something because you're not going to feel like eating because yeah. I have oh, this yeah. problem where I look at my watch and I have like, you know, 15,000 steps and it's like you burn however many calories. And then I look at my like, you know, food diary or whatever. And it's like, you've eaten, well, you had a Nothing. coffee this morning. Yeah. So definitely eat something. <laughs> uh, next question comes from stage manager for life. That's Abby. She asks, what are your favorite places to have date night in Athens? Okay. So let's, let's do this like this. Let's do it like $1 sign, $2 sign, $3 sign kind of deal. Okay. So we yeah, can yeah, kind yeah. of put some different, di- oh shit. I just kicked my desk. So we can kind of put some different <laughs> price uh, points on it here. So What's your favorite sort of like week in, week out, one dollar sign place? What is one dollar sign? Is it like less than ten dollars? No, no, no. I'm saying just like 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 a place. It could be a nice sit down place, but just somewhere that Something, you're not going to okay. spend like a hundred dollars on the meal or whatever. 
Yeah, okay. Um, I would say probably world famous. That is the place where we had our first date, and it is somewhere that we really love still, and we like to eat there um, a lot. We really love their chicken and waffle club. We really love their burger. I love their burger. Um, I think it's the best burger in Athens. I would say I agree. Yeah, absolutely. What is yeah, your I would say... Where's, uh, by the way, I want to say $1 sign. Like, I'm a poor teacher, so, like, I just mean a place that you go more than, like, once a, a year yeah. or whatever. It doesn't, it's not uh, a place you, like, keep only for special occasions. Exactly. So, for me, uh, for us, Hilo is definitely a big one mm-hmm. uh, out on Prince. The Calientitos on the east side is another one that yeah. we go a lot. It's just, like, a really fun family atmosphere. And I mean family very literally. There's usually like a pack of wild feral children <laughs> running around, uh, which I is sort of the chaotic energy that I thrive off of. I would say also uh, I'm a little bit more pricey, probably somewhere that we do, you know, once in a while as opposed to all the time would be the mm-hmm. uh, trapeze, which is just, I don't know. I think it's the best beer bar in Athens probably. So <laughs> I'm just going to shout out to my friend Ben Pulaski, who was at trapeze today. Um, and saw me outside in my Whoa. spandex after the ride and uh, just called me to tell me my butt looked nice. Mm. <laughs> and he called it Trapple Bees, which I really enjoyed and is kind of mm. probably offensive to the nice folks that own tra- trapeze, but <laughs> just want to put that out into the world. Um, a little bit. $2 signs. I'm a huge fan of Viva Argentine, my man. I want to eat. Ah. Like, and the only reason I say $2 signs is because when we eat, this place we eat like a you spend way too much money there yeah way too much money like five or six empanadas and then i'll get a like the chimichurri like the this is actually like the i think the most underrated item on any menu in athens is the argentinian cheesesteak they have oh because it is a philly cheesesteak and they load it with chimichurri and holy shit it's delicious and then you got to hit yourself with some cupcakes too like right in your mouth hole so yeah mine is kind of similar i would say one siri thai uh, that uh-huh. is, I love Thai food, and Siri Thai on the east side is just there in particular. Their tropical delight uh, curry, which has like pineapple coconut curry, which I love, and you can get it so hot that it makes you cry, mm-hmm. which for me is a lot. Uh, the other place that <laughs> I think that is, I don't know, I don't want to say special to Samantha and I that we that we really love is the other restaurant that we really like is called The Place. It's downtown, has really good southern food, really really good cocktails. I really like putting cokes in my peanut, but uh, <laughs> peanuts in my coke <laughs> because I'm white trash. And they have a they have a peanut and coke cocktail that I really like there, and it's just a really good meat really free good. place. All right, what about yeah, like they, expensive Tuesday once for a lunch? Year. Also, Tuesday lunch at the place they have country fried steak, and it is the kind of country fried steak know, yeah, that very good in a, a coma like immediately it's after. Very that. Good. Yeah, it's very um, good. Yeah. My three dollar sign. We do a progressive dinner whenever we're feeling really fancy, and so what it looks like is we go to Sea Bear, we get a cocktail, we eat some oysters, um, we might get another appetizer. We go to the National, we get dinner, we get some cocktails or wine. Um, we have their Basque cake, which is a seasonal little cake that is outstanding. And then um, we either go out to Jay's to grab a bottle of wine to take home, or we will stop by the Expat and we'll have a cocktail in their lounge. Their upstairs lounge which is really fun, and they have a very good old-fashioned. For us... What about you? We... Okay, so Samantha and I are very big beach people, and so... Our, I would say our biggest place is the most common place we go to is less resort just because they have they, their hanger steak is really good. And we really like they have this sort of like uh, potato Polish pancake thing that's really good. 
But the place I think recently that we've really been going to a lot when we want like a, a nice expensive meal is Sea Bear. Samantha and I are really big beach people and we really love raw oysters. So the last time we went there, we ate, I think four dozen raw oysters to, mm-hmm. uh, between yep. us. And, you know, on top of that also had a meal or whatever. So that Sea Bear is like, they have Negroni slushies, which I love. And I don't know. I mean, I, I love Sea Bear so much. I think it's like one of my favorite places in Athens. And it, it's it's pretty pricey to begin with, but we have sort of a Viva Argentina problem with Sea Bear where it's like, it's pricey, but it's also like, well, let's just eat like another plate of oysters or whatever. And then you get the bill and you just like pass out or whatever. Yeah, exactly. All right. Zach Spieser Keynes is her final question. Uh, okay. This was, I have like, I have like a lukewarm, like, I have like a lukewarm food, ki- uh, food take. Are you ready? Zaxby's mm-hmm. is not bad. I don't get this Zaxby slander. Do people JT really Daniels, like Zaxby's? Yes. JT Daniels signed as Zaxby's like spokesperson a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> And they were, and everybody was just like, "Oh well, Popeyes is better." Hey, you know what? I don't know that Popeyes is better, y'all. It's just very different. Very Zaxby's different. chicken sandwich is very good. Zaxby's, Zaxby's, you know, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like white people chicken fingers, but like, I don't tell. I'm not going to tell you that Tlaloc is better than Sea Bear because they're two different places. Like just mm-hmm. because they it's both very sell chicken like just because they serve the same stuff. Yeah, like <laughs> doesn't yeah, mean it's like, the same I don't, food. I just, I, I just am like. Zaxby's is good. I'm a Zaxby's person personally. I think Cane's has good sauce, but I don't like their fries that much. And I think that's it's a little too greasy for me. I'm going to give you, so you gave me a lukewarm take. I'm going to give you probably a really hot take that'll upset a lot of people. <laughs> I, I don't like Cane's. I think it's bad. That's it. It's frozen chicken. It's frozen fries. And I don't understand the line that wraps around the building every time I see it. That's all. I'm sorry. I'll see myself out. <laughs> damn dude shots fired yeah it's yeah man it's not it i i also worked at chick-fil-a for like seven years and so i made good food if you think chick-fil-a is good and so yeah it's one of those things where it's like this is bad food this is bad food that i could make anywhere i could go to the store and get frozen chicken i can make it okay so i'm gonna stop talking the, okay, about chains. I, I here's what i think throws people off zaxby's mm-hmm. the average zaxby's is like actually a hellhole right like the average, yes. like running the Zaxby's, yeah, is is p- poorly maintained. Like it's a walking health code violation. The average Canes is actually pretty nice on the inside, and so I think people get fooled because every Zaxby's on the inside is <laughs> is like somehow kind of slimy, you know, and sticky. Mm-hmm. But the food there is pretty good. I don't know. I'm I'm it's a Zaxby's bad. person. Yeah. All right. Kyle Andrews asks, Team Dean, Team Jess, Team Logan. <laughs> I this mean, is, it's team, uh, team Jess is the right answer. I'm sorry. Team Jess is the right answer. This is a Gilmore Girls question to those of you that are uninitiated. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Team so Dean listen. is first boyfriend. Team Jess is the one she crushed on for her entire life. Team Logan is, uh, he's kind of a doucher that she, yeah. I think she marries Logan. No, no, no. She marries Jess and then has an affair yeah. with Logan in the new series. Um, so Logan, but, to me, Logan is like future Republican senator. So he's right out. Yes. Right? Dean is like the biggest sort of like future incel fuck boy I've ever like I hate him so much. Jess is a good boy. Luke is his uncle and Luke is my favorite character in the series. Mm-hmm. Here's here's my hot take. You know who doesn't deserve any of these people? Rory, cuz she's kind of a trash can. <laughs> she does kind of become a trash can in the newest series. She's a she Jess 
it's not that like Jess is the it, she deserves Jess. It's that Jess doesn't deserve her, man. Jess is a mm-hmm. good boy with a hard past, and he deserves the best, and that's not her. Mm-hmm. If anything, it, she should he should be say, like yeah. Soon Lee or something, who is a good girl. Yeah, Jess had a lot of growth, uh, and yeah. Rory kind of stayed a lot like Rory <laughs> throughout the entire series. And she gets older, but um, her and her mother have a lot of the same ideas and opinions and things that don't change and they think that people should change around them and i just don't think that's a very fair thing to assume of other people Um, yeah change for me because i'm this way kind of thing yeah rory's a trash can of a character that's all anyway (laughs) next question cap falcon um this is actually somebody's on our discord that does not actually no i i don't i won't say he knows doesn't know about football but he doesn't enjoy football as much as the other people on our discord server he plays games with us so his question is you have one season of a disney plus star wars show where you have the closest thing disney allows to creative freedom what is the show you produce Our, this is a good you question because you have a deep deep knowledge of star wars um oh boy I mean, my answer is probably Rogue Squadron because I think the Rogue Squadron movie is going to be pretty good, but it's not going to be mm-hmm. the vision that I have <laughs> for it. Uh, mm-hmm. I love Rogue Squadron. You could do, I mean, the Kratos Trap. You could do the Backdoor, Wedge's Gambit. Those are the first three. Uh, Starfighter's Atomar, which is like way, la- way later on, is a really good like bottle series. It could be like one season, Starfighter's Atomar. Um Wraith Squadron, I think, would also... I would probably do Wraith Squadron. Wraith Squadron is really fun. Wraith Squadron is like a spinoff of Rogue Squadron where it's all fighter pilots who are also like commandos. So they have to... It's kind of like Dirty Dozen meets like, you know, uh, like a World War II fighter series kind of thing. Um, I love it. Um, If I wasn't going to do like one of the greater X-Wing series properties, I would probably want to do some kind of like New Jedi Order stuff. Which Ooh, of course yeah. that would inter- that would interfere with any future um, any future trilogies, which you know whatever. But there's a whole series where uh, in the extended universe where Luke goes and like founds a Jedi temple on Yavin, and there's all these interesting characters and the, like just some really fun stuff. Well, on Yavin on the moon of Yavin Four because Yavin Four is the gas giant, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably Race Squadron because Race Squadron would be a really cool like. There's some there's some really cool stuff in Race Squadron where it's like the they are the grunts that are on the ground when like famous things happen. So you could mm-hmm. set it contemporaneous with the with seven, eight, and nine if you wanted, and try to like fix some of the stuff that's wrong with nine in particular, and have them be like the people on the ground while the big people are doing stuff. And I love series like that where it's like about the grunts or whatever. Uh, so yeah, that's that would probably be it. And I would want yeah. it to be like super technical and like I it. it like any Rogue Squadron, any Race Squadron, I'm like literally looking at a model X-Wing as I say this. So, but any Race Squadron <laughs> show that I made would be like airplane porn. Like it would not just be the same X-Wings every uh, episode. They would have like all sorts of like alternate, you know, variants of the X-Wings. And sometimes they would work with Y-Wing pilots and A-Wings and B-Wings. And then, you know, V-Wings, I think are kind of stupid, but whatever. We can throw them in there too. And then we get the TIE <laughs> Defender in there because that one's really fun. And like all the different TIE models. Uh, and it would just be like... Like a lot of them like outfitting and because that's the shit that I'm into. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, I just really love the old Republic. I think it's super neat. And I just really yeah. love like the super, super old lore that comes along with it. But... Have you seen the High Republic thing? It's uh, like a series yes, of books and comic books set in that yeah. time period. 
it's really neat. They have something for every age level, uh, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Do you cool. know, we have some questions that uh, warrant their own segment as well. What is that segment? That is the Dr. James Bearfield uh, Troll Corner, which is definitely not presented by Cheerwine, but it could be Cheerwine. Get at us. <laughs> uh, very first question coming from Dr. James Bearfield, which is better, simile or metaphor? Metaphor, and it's not close. <laughs> simile okay, now... <laughs> simile, simile is, is literary terms for children. Okay. Like an metaphor ass, is my deeper. ass. Because you have metaphor, but then inside a metaphor, you have implied metaphor. And then you have like, you know, like a conceit, like a big, uh, a big extended metaphor, like, uh, like a huswifery kind of style metaphor. And then you have synecdoche. And it's like metaphor is the gateway to figurative language in the rest of the world. And like, simile is like, can my girlfriend come? Like, it's not, it's, it's, it's basic. (laughs) Can you bring that back to Georgia in some way or, or the experience of being a Georgia football fan? Yeah, like, uh, simile is like the, the canned game day music that you play in your house because you can't go to the game. Mm-hmm. And metaphor is like the real thing. It's the experience of being there. Now, So next question. Now that I can get paid for my image and likeness, when should I expect my first check from you guys? Uh, future doctor, never. <laughs> once he uh, pays off his student loans, he's going to make most, more than both of us combined. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, says the, the teacher and the nonprofit director, yeah. Um, who is QB2, Vandegrift, or the mailman? I think it's going to be Vandegrift. There was some sort of scuttlebutt coming out of the last, well, the, the, the scrimmage that happened today. There was some scuttlebutt that Vandegrift had really started to come along. I actually think the, the really? real competition is probably going to be between Vandegrift and uh, Carson and Beck. Beck, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Beck is probably your most likely QB2 coming in. Mm-hmm. Next question is, how would you equate Leventhal's paradox to this upcoming season? Um, okay, so Leventhal's paradox is this idea from, well, I mean, I guess biology, bi- biomechanical engineering about uh, the, the folding of proteins. Uh, proteins fold into specific positional shapes at the end of each protein segment. This is like really, really basic, and I'm going to get some of this wrong. But basically, each segment of a protein, each part of a protein can fold in several different ways. And even very simple proteins have, you know, many, many, many points of folding to them, right? So the paradox is the idea that if there are, you know, 10 choices for every segment of the protein to fold, then there are millions and millions of combinations that they can get into, right? But which doesn't make sense because proteins in real life fold in like, you know, seconds time span, right? So like less than a second. So how can a protein fold and get through all of the permutations basically of its positional permutations um, in the time that it does. And I mean, the answer to the paradox is that proteins might have like an energy bias towards correct positions. So like each correct, each, each correct position influences other correct positions. So that makes it, lets them fold. It's basically like a, it's a biology problem uh, paradox, but it's also kind of like a law of large numbers thing. But mm-hmm. how would I equate it to this season? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's it like it, coming into any season, projecting it, there's like a multitude of variables going into it. And there's a multitude of like possible options and ways that a season can go. But I think that 
one of the things that you buy yourself when you have a high level of talent on your team is that you narrow the the projection, like you shorten the tail of your projection, right? And so in the same way that like proteins fold with an energy bias towards their correct position, I actually don't think there are that many permutations of how this season can go. Uh, just because that's the nature of Georgia's depth and skill talent, right? Your your worst case scenario, your floor is narrower than most people's floor. Mm -hmm. And the final question is, equate the SEC East teams to different cheeses. <laughs> okay, you know way more about cheese than me. So this is this might Do be I? like a you question. I don't, okay. I'm not like... You're not what? I don't know. I, I, I like cheese. I Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's make it a more accessible question for you. Like, you like cheese. Um, let's let's throw out a few cheeses. So we have, of course, things like American cheese, which you're very familiar <laughs> with American cheese, obviously. Who would you say is the American cheese of the SEC East? Florida. Fuck them. <laughs> uh, okay, course. I have one. Okay. 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 Monterey Jack, I think, is Kentucky because... Okay. It seems really basic. It seems really white people, but it's actually pretty good, right? If you learn to cook with it, like it can do some really interesting things. It's better than mm -hmm. it seems like for mm -hmm. just being like a plain white cheese. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah, it's a little, a little mo bit more going on. Let me ask you this. For Vanderbilt, though, are you think they're more of like a, like a feta or are they more like a goat cheese or cream cheese going on? <laughs> or am I in the well, wrong world at all? I like, I like the idea of cream cheese because it's like they're not really cheese. <laughs> They're not really a football team. <laughs> I was going to say like something fancy, like something fancy that smells bad, like camon. Well, no, not camembert. What are the like? Be like a blue cheese. Like well, an but ash what are blue. the? Let's, yeah, the really expensive blue cheeses, like that mm -hmm. that smell really bad. I mean, I like them, but that's that's very Vandy. Like this this cheese cost forty five dollars for an ounce, mm -hmm. or whatever. So the next cheeses that I'll throw at you. Let, let's see. Is there a Gouda that we have They're They're usually more of like a semi to hard. I do know a lot about cheese. This is, <laughs> it's like a semi hard to hard cheese. Um, it can have a lot, it, it can have like a, you can have a really fancy Gouda that has like a, like a nutty flavor, or sometimes it's just an easy cheese to, um, not melt completely, but melt and still maintain some shape. Those are kind of the characteristics of Gouda. I feel like Gouda might be like Missouri. Mm -hmm. where it's, it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of exotic, but it's ultimately kind of just like a bunch of white people. Uh-huh. Then I have a, a, what about a Gruyere? It's a slightly, or it's, it can sometimes be fruity or earthy or nutty, but they tend to be kind of grainy and, uh, or it can go the exact opposite. Like you can also have like a lot of really savory flavors, but nothing overpowering Gruyere. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, um, a gateway to fancier cheeses in a lot of ways. The problem with this it, this sort of exercise is that mm -hmm. the like I love all cheeses, mm -hmm. and ergo it is hard to compare them to teams that I hate. Um, <laughs> gateway to fancier cheese that that would be Tennessee, right? Because like uh -huh. they act like they are a big time program, but they're really not. They're sort of the gateway to actually good programs. Mm -hmm. uh, is anybody mozzarella? <laughs> i i think uh south carolina might be like string cheese <laughs> or, or no is south carolina like um cheese whiz cheese whiz yeah they're cheese whiz for sure um and then what about like a like a brie you know they've got the hard uh outside but a really soft inside usually paired with like who have, fruits who have or we done? we've done south carolina kentucky florida tennessee Missouri. I guess Georgia. We Missouri. Georgia. What kind of cheese is Georgia? 
Hmm. Bree, I, I think Bree is a good is a good is a good choice because like people tend to either love or hate Brie. And then the mm-hmm. people who really like it are like the sickos who eat it with the wax on, you know? They, they <laughs> They're eat, like, eat I eat the this. whole thing. It's fine. They eat the rind. Which is that's mm-hmm. like very Georgia fan to be like, yeah, this is good. Mm. This is what humans should eat. Mm. Yeah, this is how this is how being a fan should be. I'm a yeah. uh, I'm a trash bag. I'm a trash can. S- stomp on me. Like that's very. Like, there's perfectly good soft cheese in the inside that you should be eating. You just gotta you just gotta, you just gotta cut into like... it. Yeah, you got yeah, all these five right stars. There. Yeah, it's like hey, you have all these five stars. Shouldn't you be having fun with this? It's like no, I eat the whole thing. Mm. <laughs> I, I just take a bite out of it. <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh, I hate that. All right, see us out. Well, this has been Chapel Bell Curve. If you liked what you heard here today, you can do several things. One, you can follow us on social media. We are at Chapel Bell Curve pretty much everywhere social media is found. If you really want to like, if you really like this program and you want to support it and help make it better, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Chapel Bell Curve. As little as $1 a month will get you access to our very, very fun Discord, which is just the saltiest, thirstiest place on the planet. We'll also get you access to our live recording streams where you can hear the things we actually say that we cut out so we don't get fired. And hopefully it will get you access to even more benefits going forward. Mm-hmm. If you would like to contact us, the best way to do that is via Twitter DMs at Chapel Bell Curve. You can find me at Nathan J. Lawrence and you can find Justin at the Justin Bray. If you have a mm-hmm. question for the podcast, though, send it to Chapel Bell Curve. We will catch you in Charlotte in two weeks, and we will catch you mm. in the Classic City in Parts Unknown until then. Go dogs. Go dogs.